kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 44 and reading through Acts 11, verse 18. Acts 10, beginning in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners. And it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household Will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. We won't be able to cover all of these texts in just one study, but we need to read them together in order to draw some meaningful information from the conclusion that sheds light on the earlier material which we will be discussing. In previous studies, we have described the events of Acts 10 and 11 is among the most significant happenings in the history of the world. It does not seem to me that this should properly be called the first Gentile conversion. I believe there's compelling evidence that some Gentiles had already obeyed the gospel under the preaching of men like Philip and perhaps even Saul. But this event was in some respects more monumental than even that. 
It marked not merely the admission of one man or one family into the kingdom of heaven, even one who had been previously excluded, but it marked God's great work to open the eyes and enlighten the understanding of the apostles of Jesus Christ to the fullness of their responsibility to every creature of all nations in all the world in taking the witness of Christ to them and making disciples of them. Through visions, angelic visitations, special revelations of the Holy Spirit, and providential arrangements of all kinds of situational factors to make unlikely meetings transpire, the Lord Jesus Christ brought his Apostle Peter to the house of a God-fearing, justification-seeking Gentile named Cornelius, so that he might preach the gospel to him. In earlier studies, we asked why Peter. Remember that there was already a preacher in this city, Philip, a great evangelist who had already demonstrated the capacity to share the message of Jesus with those of other nations and even to immerse them into Christ. But that was perhaps just the point. It seems that the Hellenistic Christians were much quicker to apprehend the universality of the gospel than the Judean Hebrew Christians, which would of course included the apostles. However, that would not do because the apostles had been given a unique empowerment by the Holy Spirit and a unique exposure to the incontrovertible evidences of the resurrection of Jesus that was absolutely necessary to the establishment and increase of the kingdom of Christ throughout the world. If they simply remained in Jerusalem in the near region, ministering only to their fellow Jews, then the great purpose of God in Christ would not be fully realized. Thus Peter was brought to the house of Cornelius, not primarily for Cornelius' benefit, but for the sake of Peter and the other apostles, and through them, the world at large. In Acts 10.28, Peter expressed his apprehension about his involvement in this situation because, as he stated to Cornelius, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. He says, You know how unlawful. While we've already pointed out that he was describing Jewish custom rather than the actual demands of the law of God— or even the law of Moses, these words show that the customs which shaped and defined the convictions of all the Hebrew Jews were very much opposed to the idea that God would ever accept a person and give him a portion of the covenant blessings of Abraham if he was not circumcised and brought into the law-keeping community of Israel. So Peter is stating that he knows and he expects that Cornelius knows that his fellow Judean Jews would not agree that it was right for him to be there or to be preaching to these people about how to follow the Messiah. He was Israel's Messiah, not Rome's. And his work was to restore Israel, not Rome. Nevertheless, Peter continues, But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Peter had earlier told the Sanhedrin that it was his conviction we ought to obey God rather than men. And now we see that was not simply his philosophy about how to deal with corrupt politicians, but it was his heartfelt commitment for every aspect of his life. Peter's sermon to Cornelius was in many respects very similar to his sermons previously preached to the Jews, other than the fact that he quotes no Old Testament scripture. There are two possible explanations for this. The first is that he felt it was sufficient when speaking to a Gentile to say as he did in verse 43, to him 
all the prophets witness, that is to suggest that Jesus is the end and point of the whole body of Old Testament scripture, the particulars of which might not have meant so much to Cornelius. However, it's also possible that Peter might have integrated several passages uh, into his presentation had he not been interrupted. Resuming in verse 44, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. In chapter 11, verse 15, Peter recounts the incident and says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell. So the indication is that Peter's sermon was nowhere near his intended conclusion, but we suppose that at least he had said everything that Luke reported. We'll continue reading through verse 46 before we examine more of the details. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. There's a great deal to consider in these words, and it represents some of the most significant, meaningful theology in the book of Acts. It is also among the most twisted and perverted sections of the book in the way it has been abused to promote all kinds of ideas that are alien to the New Testament, or in direct contradiction of what the Bible says in other places. What happened to Cornelius, his household, and his friends, or as Luke says, all those who heard the word, is variously described by Luke and Peter himself as the Holy Spirit fell upon them. The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit, and they were given the same gift as the Jews earlier. We must take all of these expressions into account as we try to make sense of this situation. What we have here is not the ordinary experience of salvation, because it was accompanied by the phenomenon of tongue-speaking, which the Bible plainly says is not experienced by all Christians, 1 Corinthians 12 and 30. And it preceded baptism in water, which Jesus and the writers of Scripture plainly state is the event of salvation in the Christian age, Mark 16, 16, Acts 2, 38, and Acts 22, 16. Neither is this the impartation of gifts to the church, as we saw previously in Acts 8, because that was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, Acts 8.18, and such did not occur here. What takes place on this occasion is both a direct work of Jesus Christ and a work which entailed miraculous manifestations of spiritual power, and the only event in history comparable to it was, as Peter himself testified, what happened to the apostles at the beginning. There's only one event to which Peter could be referring with this expression— and that's what Jesus called the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which was given to the apostles on the day of Pentecost. The other expressions, such as the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit being poured out, also correspond to the language of Pentecost in Acts 2.17, 2.33, and 2.38. And again, Peter calls what these people received the same gift. Thus, we are safe in concluding that Cornelius and those with him were baptized in the Holy Spirit, just as the apostles had been on the day of Pentecost. But at this point, we must be very cautious not to import any ideas about what baptism in the Holy Spirit meant or what it means. Instead, we should seek to simply draw from the text, as we did from texts earlier in Acts 2, what the Word of God is saying. In our previous consideration of Acts 2, we asked the following questions. Number one, 
What did baptism with the Spirit entail? Number two, what did baptism with the Spirit accomplish? Number three, what did baptism with the Spirit mean? Now, we will apply those same questions to the case of Cornelius, and I believe our answers will be even clearer. First, we see very plainly what baptism in the Holy Spirit entailed. When Luke says, the Spirit fell upon them, this is a common expression for a supernatural imposition of the Holy Spirit's power in a sense that might be considered overwhelming. And that's why it's called a baptism. Something like this happened at other times in history, such as with King Saul in 1 Samuel 19, verses 23 through 24. In the two cases in Acts 2 and 10, however, the sense in which the Spirit overwhelmed the people was especially profound, even to the point of enabling them to speak in languages that were unknown to them. This is what the Bible means by speaking in tongues. In Acts 2, we learn that the tongues were normal human languages that were, in fact, completely intelligible to those who came from the nations where the languages were spoken. Comparing Acts 10 and 2, it seems that tongue speaking was an essential element of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That does not mean that only those baptized in the Spirit spoke in tongues, but it does mean that the phenomenon of tongue speaking was especially related to Holy Spirit baptism, and according to the Bible, was always a part of it. We do not read in Acts 10 about the sound of a rushing mighty wind or something as fire taking the shape of tongues and resting on the heads of the Gentiles as it did the apostles. It's possible then that those particular experiences which took place in Acts 2 were more related with the apostles receiving the helper than they were to the baptism with the Spirit itself. If you recall from our earlier studies, we made a distinction between the coming of the Helper, who empowered the Twelve to serve as apostles, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the general inauguration of the Holy Spirit's work among the people of Christ. That distinction is very important here. That brings us to our second question. Having established that Holy Spirit baptism involved an intense, overwhelming imposition of the Spirit into the minds and wills of those who experienced it, and was manifest by the sudden phenomena of tongue-speaking, we now ask, what did it accomplish? Cornelius and his family were not becoming apostles. This is a common suggestion about the purpose of spirit baptism, but it doesn't fit with the case of Cornelius. There's no further mention of them in the Bible and no indication that they held any special position in the primitive churches. Nor were they being made a part of the body of Christ. That comes through baptism in water, as we shall see in just a moment. But rather, they were experiencing the special phenomenal divine testimony that both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ himself declared would prove on earth that Jesus had received all glory, authority, and power in heaven. This brings us to the third point, the meaning of Holy Spirit baptism. In our earlier studies, we concluded that baptism with the Spirit was a precursor and companion to the destruction of Jerusalem called by John in Matthew chapter 3, the baptism in fire. These two things together were announced by the prophet Joel as signs to Israel that Jesus was truly the Messiah and that his kingdom was inaugurated in the world. Listen again to Acts chapter 1 verses 4 through 8. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit 
not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In these passages, Jesus informs the apostles that his kingdom would be established and they would receive the divine authority and assistance of the Holy Spirit, whom he called the Helper, or the promise of the Father, which gave them apostolic power. At the same time, they were baptized with the Spirit. The baptism in the Spirit and the reception of the Helper would be for them distinct, but for them simultaneous. Evidently, they were so eager that they were incessantly asking him, Lord, will it be today? Is it now? Is the time come yet? And when Jesus answered them, he spoke to that issue of when by stating that God would not give them a time. He said, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but rather God would give them a sign to watch for. You shall receive power, that is, you will know the kingdom of God is present when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That is, when you see the presence of the Holy Spirit manifest in the baptism with the Spirit, which John and I have predicted. In Acts 10, we learn why Jesus gave them a sign rather than a time. A time can come and go. And it seems the apostles had concluded that when the Jews were welcomed into the reign of Jesus, that was the fullness of God's plans and purposes. But here is the sign again, and here it has been manifest among the Gentiles to show that the kingdom of heaven is meant to extend to the ends of the earth, not merely by the conversion of the Jewish diaspora, but by converting all the nations to King Jesus. He is Rome's Messiah, and it is his mission to restore Rome and all other nations as well. That's the point and the message of this whole event. The Spirit came and overwhelmed these people, even to the point of enabling them to speak in other languages. And this was to signify to Peter and all Israel that God intended they too should become partakers in the kingdom of heaven. This means that baptism in the Holy Spirit is not something that happens all the time and to everyone who believes, but rather it was an historical wonder that took place twice, once on the day of Pentecost and again here in Acts 10. It was the first sign of the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on earth, and it was given for the benefit of Israel. I realize, of course, that the interpretation I've just offered is by no means the most popular in modern Christianity, so I want to explore some of these matters further and show some additional support for it. First, consider the role of tongue-speaking in connection with Holy Spirit baptism. In the past, I have been under the misapprehension that tongue-speaking was intended to serve the churches in their evangelistic endeavors. But there's no evidence for this, nor was there any need for it. By the providence of God, the church was born in a world that already spoke one language, the Greek language. Although I always envisioned that when Peter preached on Pentecost, he preached in tongues, the text does not say that, and in fact it is best read differently. Peter and the other apostles were speaking the wonderful works of God in tongues. That is, they were praising and worshiping Jesus in foreign languages while gathering in the upper room. When the men in Jerusalem for the feast heard them doing this, they all came together to see what was going on because that was very unorthodox and unexpected. And Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, 
Note that when the preaching started, it was only Peter, and he was speaking to the whole crowd, including the locals, in a language they all understood, probably Aramaic. In fact, every time tongue speaking is recorded in the Bible, we are, if we're told what the people were saying, we find that they were praising, not preaching. The apostles spoke the wonderful works of God in the language of the Gentiles, and here the Gentiles are magnifying God. And though Luke does not tell us what language they were speaking, I suggest it was most certainly Hebrew. It would not have been impressive to hear Gentiles speak Gentile languages. But if, as Peter preached, these Gentiles suddenly began to sing, perhaps the Psalms of David, perhaps one of the great royal Psalms about the coronation of God's Son in glory in the language of Israel, that would have been a striking, astonishing, and very significant thing. What was the point of tongue speaking if it was not intended as an evangelistic tool? The Apostle Paul shed some very important light on this matter in 1 Corinthians 14, 20-22. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people. And yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. This can be a very confusing passage, but when it is understood... It makes a great deal of sense to the whole issue of tongues and their connection to Holy Spirit baptism. The Apostle Paul cites here a, a prophecy from Isaiah 28, verses 9 through 13. I'm going to read it from the New American Standard Version because it's much clearer than the New King James here. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to these people through stammering lips in a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord will be to them, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go back and stumble backward be broken, snared, and taken captive. In this passage, God rebukes Israel for their hard-heartedness and stubbornness, their refusal to hear him, in which he says they are acting toward his revelations like little children. He, he sends his prophets to them, and it's like they're preaching to babies who cannot understand speech. Isaiah says the word of the Lord is to them, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. If you look at the footnote of the New American Standard Version, you'll see this interesting and illuminating comment. Quote, The Hebrew reads, Savlasav, Savlasav, Kavlakav, Kavlakav, Zersham, Zersham. And then this comment. These Hebrew monosyllables, imitating the babbling of a child, mock the prophet's preaching. You see, the translators have done a disservice by rendering this literally in English and causing us to miss sight of the play on words here. Isaiah is saying that because of the stubbornness and spiritual immaturity of the people, the word of God comes into their ears and it sounds like baby talk. We would say it's goo goo gaga. And God says, if that's how you treat my revelation when I give it to you through your prophets in words that you should understand, 
then indeed I will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. In the original context, Isaiah was foretelling the judgment God would bring against Israel by the invasion of the Assyrian Empire. But in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul applies this prophecy to the miracle of tongue-speaking and says that tongues are for a sign to unbelievers. If we put it all together, the unbelievers are the Jews who reject Christ and his kingdom. When God gave Israel the sign that the kingdom of heaven had come and Jesus was reigning as supreme Lord of the universe, he gave them the sign of Jews speaking the language of Gentiles and Gentiles speaking the language of Jews. The point of the sign was that the season of Israel being God's special treasure above all peoples was coming to an end. And the time had come for all nations to become partakers of the blessings of Abraham. If Israel did not accept the revelation and truth given through God's Son, then the end of their time would be marked by the destruction. Of course, it was always his intention to bless the nations, but now Israel had to choose whether they would share in that blessing or reject it. And this miracle of tongue-speaking was a flashing signal to them. God will have a people from any place in any nation where men and women will serve him. He may be praised in any language by any tribe, and this was his design from the beginning. There was another aspect of Holy Spirit baptism that also supports our interpretation of it being the sign of the kingdom of heaven brought to earth, namely, when it was called an outpouring of the Spirit. Even as early as the covenant at Sinai, God informed Israel that his desire was to make a kingdom of priests. Later discussions in the Old and New Testaments, like Numbers 11:29 and 1 Timothy 5:12, show that God intends all of those who are the people of Christ to become partakers in his prophetic, priestly, and royal ministries. The kingdom of Christ is one in which his subjects reign with him. And its inauguration was signaled by the same divine oil, the Holy Spirit of God, by which Jesus himself was anointed for his wonderful office, according to Peter in Acts 10.38, being symbolically poured out on those he would claim for his people. In our next study, we will consider how Peter and the others reacted to these powerful demonstrations from the Lord Jesus, that the kingdom is here and the kingdom is spreading. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, come over and help us to cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. 
At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.